Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man ma wala Namina ta'alim wa ta'alim wa nafur intifa' wa tadhakir wa tadhkir wal ifada wal istifada wal hath ala tamasib bi kitabillah wa sunat rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dhu'a ila al-huda wa dalala ala al-khair ibtigha'a wa tillahi ta'ala wa mardati kurbi thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala wa ma'alimahu allahu min salihin ya nasarullahu yaj'alana من العلماء العاملين الفائزين بعلم اليقين وعين اليقين وحق اليقين ويرزقنا كمال مذهبتي لسيد المرسلين بسم الله um, We had a bit of a break uh, post Ramadan We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the blessings of Ramadan firmly rooted in us Inshallah that they came, they were received and inshallah they will stay one of the metaphors of the heart is like a bucket and a very large metaphorical bucket and a bucket has the capacity and potential to hold water with certain conditions one that is facing the right direction so that when water flows that it's able to catch it if it's inverted that it's not going to receive water secondly is that it can't have any holes in it and sins are what place holes in the buckets of our hearts. The more that we sin, then the more that the khair and the rahmah and the barakah that we receive is that it goes right through and and falls out. And nevertheless, is that we remain positive, we have an outlook that even if we fall short, we keep moving forward. And this is what our Prophet taught when he said, and follow up a bad deed with a good deed and it will erase it. Uh, but the person who is in a state of witnessing that they fall short while doing everything that they can to remain upright is not the same as someone who is constantly falling short and striving to that pick themselves up. So we're going to continue on inshallah ta'ala uh, with this roha and the name roha in the Arabic word and language <coughs> is a word that is used in a number of different ways. It stems from a hadith of our Prophet Sallallahu A roha, a going out once in the afternoon, and I'll explain what that going out means, is better than the world and everything that is in it. And that has a military meaning. If someone is fighting a just war to go out to sacrifice for the sake of Allah is better than the world and everything that is in it. But it also has various degrees of metaphorical meaning. And we know because our Prophet said, وسلم, is that anyone who leaves their home with the intention of seeking knowledge, that that person is feasibilillah until they return. And even if you only traveled two and a half minutes or three minutes or walked about 50 paces here and your intention was knowledge, talab al-ilm is that la qadar Allah were something to happen to you and I were we to die on our return or in the moment, if our intention was sincere, we would die as a shaheed. That is one of the martyrs who that gets the reward of martyrs even though they're buried normally as opposed to that the true meaning of martyrs we learn in the books of fiqh. And so learning is that one of the metaphorical meanings of that struggle and striving. So from this, the roha is that done after asr. And the ulama have taught us and told us 
is that we have two different types of rizq. We have rizq hissi and rizq ma'nawi. That is, we have physical sustenance and we have spiritual sustenance. And our physical sustenance is distributed in the inner realm after Salat al-Fajr. This is why that we learn in a narration is that to stay and remain in a state of worship after you pray the Fajr prayer until sunrise is that better for you in terms of acquiring your physical sustenance than it is to travel and trade all throughout the earth. And it's counterintuitive in a sense because you think, wait a second, the early bird gets the worm. If you define that outwardly as, okay, the first person gets out and works, gets an, or has an early work date and so forth and is out there working and that they're going to, it would seem, that make more money and that be more successful in their business. Uh, but we know that there is an inter, the entire world is interconnected, the inner realm and the outer realm, and risk if from our a perspective of faith is ultimately from Allah. And that we know that Allah, what that means, will facilitate your sustenance in ways that He won't facilitate it for other people and all of the meanings of facilitation. And so, to spend that time in a state of worship, which is one of the times that we should really preserve the time from Fajr until Ishraq, until sunrise, is that is a way to that obtain sustenance, physical sustenance. And they say that spiritual sustenance is distributed after Asr. Is distributed after Asr. And this is for this reason that in some places in the Muslim world, this is the choice time to study books that refine the heart, that hammer the meanings of that realization of Ihsan into the heart. The best time to study them is after Asr. So in that vein is that we've just titled it Roha because it doesn't really translate well into the English language. And with the, intent, uh, with the intention of exposing ourselves to the sweet breezes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy. Um, from here on out, or at least for the time being, uh, the roha will consist of three parts. We'll begin with a very v- brief uh, reminder on some of the intentions that we should have in various aspects of our life. And we will be doing a summarized version of the Book of Intentions by Habib Sa'ad al Aydurus, Habib Muhammad bin Ali al Aydurus was the teacher of the Qur'an of Sayyidah Habib Umar bin Hafid, and he based some of his book, or a good portion of his book, off of the original work, which was Kitab al-Niyat by Sheikh Ali. Sheikh Ali bin Abi Bakr, uh, who is, that lived uh, many centuries that ago, uh, but he, he based his work off that work, and it's, of, um, it's very beneficial, and he'll get into some intentions that Sheikh Ali didn't cover. Intentions like, what do you make when, intentions do you make when you're drinking tea? What intentions do you make when you're drinking coffee? What intentions do you make when you're driving in your car? There are so many different intentions that you can make in virtually every aspect of your life. The key is, is to learn what they are and to talk about them time and time again and to just constantly remind ourselves of the importance of intentions and to teach ourselves how to make them and keeping in mind that the Salaf, the early people, they used to teach their children the science, if you will, of intentions. 
the way that a Qur'an teacher would teach a student a chapter of the Qur'an. And so that if you look at this beautiful that metaphor, uh, it, it's if you have someone who's learning Qur'an, it is a process of learning the letters and then putting, connecting them, and then learning to read, and then spending a lot of time in repetition, and then that after you've memorized it, reviewing. The time that goes into hifth al-Qur'an and learning a chapter of the Qur'an, even before you actually put it into practice or while you put it into practice, it's a long, arduous process. And likewise, is that this is the process of intentions and learning what it is that we should be making in terms of intention. How do we distinguish a righteous intention from a that uh, muddled intention? And what are the, the various intentions that we can make in the various aspects of our lives? And in that regard, there's three important, and this is review, for those who have heard this before, but you can never review the intention enough, is that there's the three most important dimensions of the intention are purity of intention, one, and that, um, that greatness of intention, two, and continuity of intention, three. The first one is obvious, being sincere in your intentions. The second one means making multiple intentions for everything that you do. And you could add to that as well, the state of heart, while you make multiple intentions, is making them strong and that having, that making them definitive and that really having strength of heart when you get into something and when you actually embark upon something. There's a, and this is the, the slight difference between niya and azam, is that intention is you are exercising your will to do that particular thing. That resolution is that nothing is going to stop you from actually doing that thing. And that this is very important because it's a very subtle step. If your intention is not strong, there are a thousand and one ways that shaitan will try to thabituka, to prevent you from actually doing what you it is that you set out to intend. And this is why of the six categories of sidq, of truthfulness, according to Imam Ghazali, one of them is that truthfulness in terms of your azam, your resolution. After you make an intention, part of truthfulness is, is that you make sure to carry out what it is that you intended. And um, there's stories upon stories about this, uh, and that this is something very, very important for us to know. Because how many times in our daily lives do we intend to do something? Intend to give out wealth, intend to help someone, intend to that do someone a favor, <clears throat> intend to call someone, intend to do something, and then a whole bunch of things happen, and then if you don't jump on it quickly, it might subside, or it might that wean slightly the strength of that intention, and the next time that it might not be there in the way that it was previously. And in this regard, is that after you know that it is that you should do something, haste is a good thing. Haste is blameworthy for the most part, unless it's a blink-like decision that you have to make and respond to a particular situation instantaneously, which we need to learn how to do that as well. But for the most part, major decisions in our life, what we want is to end. We want to have consideration 
We want to take our time and we want to that really think things through to pray istikhara, to seek advice and to go through a whole process uh, because ajal is from shaitan. But at, at, at this level is that when you know that it is, this is something you should do, at this point, what is praiseworthy is to hasten to do it so that you don't lose the strength of that intention. So um, we have sincerity of intention, we have that greatness of intention, and then thirdly we have what you could call continuity, that making sure that in all of your different states that you're making intentions. So you're sincere, that you're making big intentions in everything that you do. And if you combine that and you implement that in your life, your life will be very different. Even in a time that is defined by taqarib al-zaman, where the time is literally getting closer together in the way that is experienced subjectively by us, is that time is not the way that people before us experienced it for us. There's much less blessing in it. Even in times where there's a lack of blessing, that in time is that by turning your entire life into an act of worship by way of intention, that you will see every single day as an opportunity. Every single moment as an opportunity. This is why the intention is just so, so, so incredible. That some of them say that it's nusf al-ilm. It's half of all knowledge. That some of them said that it enters into 70 different chapters of ilm, of knowledge. And it is, it is so central to this deen. <clears throat> and the greatest hadith collection of all begins with the hadith of intention for a very good reason. So, uh, we wanted to review the intentions for service. And um, in the, for those that, that were, might follow in the Book of Intentions, the English translation, which is not really readily available, although I was told that it should be printed fairly soon, bismillah, is that um, it has it as da'wah. And I think the, the, the best way to translate da'wah personally is service. Because the essence of da'wah is service. And if we only translate da'wah as something like propagation or calling to Allah, it would seem to that limit the scope of its true meaning in, in the minds of many people. So there are, are 16 intentions that we can make. And uh, for those that are following online or everyone here, if you can add any to this, uh, please do. And we can add them to the list. Um, and it, we very well might find other intentions that we can make. And sometimes there, um, you could have kind of an overarching intention that has a lot of other kind of like sub-like intentions that relate to it. And that's a good thing to do as well. So it, it's, uh, that's definitely there. Uh, but, but it shows us kind of how we have to do this. So we intend to serve, number one, to draw near to Allah. And that's obviously the intention that we make for everything it is that we do. Two, to obey the command of Allah. Allah says, Ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati wa hasana. In the command form, Ud'u, call, right, to the path of your Lord. So this is a commandment from Allah. So we intend to obey the command of Allah too. Three, to follow the messenger of Allah and the righteous predecessors. That's an intention that we make, to follow in their footsteps. Their entire life was service. And the greatness of one's service is, yes, defined by the state of one's heart while they're serving. 
not always in terms of what they're actually doing. So that you could have someone who might only in their life help 15 people or 20 people. And you have someone else that helps 200,000 people. But the state of heart of that person while they're helping those 15 to 20 people that are in their circle of influence is so great is that their service is greater with Allah Tabarak wa Ta'ala. Now it doesn't detract from the outward level of service. Right? But the state of our heart is very, very important uh, while we serve. And that, that making the intention to follow. And then the second aspect of that is, is that how much of our life do we spend in service? In other words, to what degree are we willing to cut back from the mubahat, the permissible things, to spend in service? The permissible is permissible. You can't fault someone for <clears throat> doing something that's permissible unless that person becomes extravagant in the spending of their wealth or they just start wasting too much of their time. You can't fault someone for staying within the realm of the permissible. But what a difference is between that type of person, between someone who that tries to make every single moment of their life service. And don't think that you have to be in a setting of knowledge to serve. That there are people that they just go from the classroom to their home. And in home, they're making the intention of service. They're making the intention of da'wah in their own homes. In terms of the character that they have, in terms of how they interact with the people in their household, in terms of what they actually do in their household. And that we know that the sunnah of our Prophet wasallam is that he was the most humble of all people. And he was in the service he was in the service of his family. He used to mend his own shoes. He used to sweep the floor, He used to cut the meat and he used to milk the goats. And he would help around the house such that one of them would say, Is that? He was in the home like one of us. And that was also the way that he carried himself with his loved ones. Is that there was always a degree to which that he preserved there's no doubt uh, his the dignity. And, and, but the way he carried himself at home was he was very lighthearted and very approachable until it was time for prayer. And then one of them would say, it was as if that we did not know him or he did not know us. Halas. Now it's time for Allah. And so immediately that when it was time to pray that he would that adjust accordingly sallallahu alayhi <coughs> The third intention is to bring life to the prophetic teachings. To bring life to them. And that we have to be the change that we want to see in other people. It begins with our own selves. It begins with our own household. It begins with our own community. It begins with our family and our friends. It begins with ourselves. And bringing life to the prophetic intentions, that's the intention that we make. Five, to spread knowledge and facilitate practice. So specifically, we can make that intention to spread knowledge. <clears throat> and knowledge, not only in terms of that quoting the Qur'an or the Hadith, but the knowledge of how to be and in what situation. So the knowledge of hal, of state, in terms of how to respond. And so you could teach someone a lifelong lesson without saying anything. Without saying anything. And sometimes, that when you don't say anything, that's actually what was, the, what was the right thing to do. 
and you're teaching people. And not all of, subhanAllah, we have this uh, false notion that all of the great teachers that came before us, they were these very eloquent speakers that wore big turbans and robes. SubhanAllah, it wasn't always like that. There, there are always, there's always been teachers that have spoken very little. That one of the, the great uh, scholars of the Comoro Silence, Habib Omar bin Ahmed bin Sumait, is that when students used to read with him, he would give virtually almost no commentary. He would just let the books be read, and his presence was an elixir that allowed those meanings to become a reality in the hearts of the people that were before him. That was just who he was. And um, I've had other friends that have told me about different shiuch, where that they would just sit with their students. And there wouldn't be any type of discourse. They would just sit with them. And from the blessing of the suhbah, is that the students would transform. And it doesn't negate that formal learning. That's a good thing. And we always encourage that. But the point is, is that you can teach in a number of different ways to spread knowledge and facilitate practice. And this is the secret of what's called talaqi, learning from living teachers. Is that by learning from them, you get three things. One, knowledge. Two, a correct understanding of the knowledge. Three, the state of the teacher teaching you, which essentially helps facilitate practice of that knowledge, putting it into practice, that is. Number six, to fulfill a communal obligation. Service is no doubt a communal obligation. Seven, to fulfill the rights of others. Different people have rights upon you. That your family has rights upon you, that you spend time with them and that you teach them. They have rights upon you. And there will be people that come, Yom Qiyamah, they'll think that they are going into paradise. And then that when their children see that, that they will say, Ya Rabb, iqtas min zalim. Give me my right from this oppressor. And their parents thought that they were going to paradise. And it turns out that they neglected their children. They did not teach them the deen. And that justice will be exacted. Right? And so uh, we have to that fulfill the rights of others and make that intention. And in general, that we all have various circles of influences. And that whoever's within our circle of influence, they have a right upon us that we teach them or help them <coughs> or serve them. Number eight, to rectify the community. Is that we want to bring people closer together. We want to solve problems. That we want to be like the bee and be a shifa. Because the bee emits honey, which is ultimately a shifa. We want to be people who heal other people's wounds. Who bring people together. Islah that al Number nine, to remove calamities from the ummah of our Prophet By actively being involved in service, is that there's a direct correlation between that and a removal of calamities. The more people that are actively involved, that the better off everyone will be. And calamities literally are diverted, are warded off. And the beautiful thing about this is that not just with Muslims, by doing the right thing, by being in the service of our people, in the broadest meaning of the word people, is that calamities are warded off from everyone, not just Muslims, from everyone that are, is around us. And that sometimes, subhanAllah, when that problems happen within the community, is that people of wisdom and of insight, they look to their own selves. 
and they'll find that they've been neglectful of one of their awrat or that they've been that neglectful of qiyam al-layl or they haven't been in the proper state of tawajjuh or their heart is not present in some of the gatherings in the way it should be and that they actually see themselves as that the cause of rifts that happen with other people and they blame themselves for it that were I to have been in that better state were I to have had adhered to those awrad maybe those things wouldn't have happened because that you'd be surprised how that important it is for that some people to be in a certain state to allow other people just to get by in other words there are people that, that bear things on, on behalf of others 10. To learn to patiently endure harm, difficulty, and affliction. You make that intention. If you're involved in service of any type, there will be people that try to harm you. You will go through difficulties. You will be afflicted. You can't do something that is good except that someone's going to say something, someone's going to criticize, someone is going to try to maneuver something's going to happen right and at first people are like oh my god i'm just only trying to do good how wow and why is this happening and then they might say i'm going to leave it no it's the worst thing you can do the whole reason it's there is a lot is testing you are you doing it for people's approval are you doing it for people to cheer you on or to congratulate you are you doing this for the sake of allah if you're doing it for the sake of allah you will learn to develop alligator skin, if you will, and alligator skin that just wards off this harm that comes from people and that you learn that this is just part of it. Our Prophet himself was not free from people speaking the ill of him. Number 11, which is related to this, is to learn good character. Because you will be in positions where you must respond with good character. In good character is an end in and of itself. That you are successful if you've had good character. Even if it means outwardly that you don't achieve what it is that you are trying to achieve. You've been successful if you have good character. And in the end, the people of the best character will always win. And they don't, the people of good character actually don't want anyone else to lose. But the reality is, is that they will be the ones who win. In the true meaning of winning. That most importantly, with their state with their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number 12, that <clears throat> we intend to learn about our faults. So by mixing with people, by serving, by being with people, by doing things of this nature, giving da'wah, teaching people, mixing with people, helping people, counseling people, being there for people, visiting people, you will learn a lot about yourself. And you should see those that as the greatest gift of all from Allah Ta'ala. Every fault that you learn about, you should be happy. And that you should then that direct your heart towards Allah, that He just as He that made you aware of your fault, that he is going to eventually give you a cure. Number 13, you intend to benefit yourself and others. So you carry yourself in a way you want benefit for everyone. You want benefit from everyone. And this was the, the beautiful trait of the, the true teachers, is that they want everyone to benefit, whether it's from them or whether it's from other people. They don't call to themselves. They call to Allah and the Messenger.
And if there's someone that is that more suitable to that teach or to do whatever it needs to be done, they will happily step aside so that person can do that. Number 14, to benefit from others. So the first is to benefit your own self and others. But then the 14th is to benefit from others. You actually benefit that from the people that you are serving. And sometimes someone comes to you and seeks your counsel on a particular matter and you're going through a similar situation. And you know the right, you know the answer because you're giving that answer, but you might be stuck in a certain way on how to implement it and by helping that person, you actually introspectively that know what to do in relation to your own self. That's just one example. And there's many other manifestations of benefiting from others. So to actually benefit from others. And there always is good in all people. You just have to look for it. All people. There's not a person on earth that is 100% evil. Right? All people have aspects of good within them. And so we should ask Allah Ta'ala to unveil that to us so that we can see what is good in others. And then, this is actually a repeat, I have to edit this. Uh, finally, number 15, is to become beloved to Allah and His Messenger. And we've all heard the hadith, Al-Khalq Allah. All of creation are the dependence of Allah. Ahabbuhum Allah li The most beloved of them to Allah are the most beneficial to his creation to his dependence, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are 15 different intentions that we can make. And um, if, if you think of any others, uh, please do let me know. I'm sure that we could add a few more to that if we really thought about it. <coughs> In the first two or three, um, pretty consistently we'll be there for almost everything we do. To draw near to Allah, to obey the command of Allah, to follow the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah. That will pretty much be there for everything. And then, depending upon what it is, is it you can add that others. Taiba. Marhaba. Speaking to Allah. Would you say that um, making the intention for others to become Muslim is, because it's is a, is a, is a correct intention in of itself because sometimes it seems like people take that as like their ultimate purpose whereas they just want people to become Muslim so they'll do nice things and they'll help out but the whole purpose is kind of like just become Muslim just become Muslim and he didn't mention that in right. the intentions yeah which is interesting um, you know what I, I I think that you could probably get away with it at one level as an intention right I, I think you know kind of in a general way like you know I want to you know, give da'wah to this person so they become Muslim. But if you look a little bit more carefully and you come to the realization, which is the truth, is that Allah is al-Hadi. You're not making anyone Muslim, really. right? And I think that, um, generally speaking, um, it's more important to focus on your own way of being and that be detached from any particular that effect that you are a means of that causing and 
that in that regard, I think that you will be much more effective that um, by being detached in that way of than actually making that particular intention. And I, I think that this that because Hidayah is ultimately about light, and <clears throat> the nature of light is that it shines. And so that light, as long as it's not being blocked by that other person, it will reach them, unless that person is he or herself blocking that light. And so I think that it, it, it's it's not a... Uh, a prerequisite to make that intention you're just doing what is right in any given moment right and having said that it does that doesn't mean that if you're speaking to someone who is not muslim and you have the opportunity to that directly that speak to them about allah and his messenger and become a muslim is that you refrain from doing so if that opportunity arises that we should do that right? and um i was reading something recently <clears throat> a book about some of the religious trends in America and one of the statistics within the Christian community is from that the about 2005 until now there's been a drastic decrease in that Christians who feel an importance of sharing their faith with other people and there's a lot of very very interesting statistics that, that that he has in this book and I would my assumption is is that most of them would probably that there would be a parallel in the Muslim community as well. So in, in this sense, it's it's essentially one of the meanings of da'wah. And I think increasingly in a hostile, secular world, people are that feeling more and more that religion is kind of a personal thing and it's kind of embarrassing. How many times, you don't really, in some of the loud, that obnoxious conversations at Starbucks or in public sphere, you don't tend to hear people speaking about religion too much. Right, it's usually about what they did on the weekend or the shopping mall that they just went to or just very trivial that type stuff and very loud. And everyone can hear them like across the coffee shop. But if you oftentimes see religious people speaking kind of quietly and it's not something that is, you know, at best in the modern secular world that religion can be an expression, right? But generally speaking, religion has been relegated to the private sphere. Um, and that's its own can of worms, and how we deal with that moving forward is a very, very important question that we entertain, study, and respond to. Uh, but um, I, I think that, um, having said that, if an opportunity arises to speak to someone directly, right, in a way that's appropriate with wisdom, depending upon the nature of that person, I think we should. You know, and uh, whether that person's next to us on the plane, or whether that person's at the store, and so forth and so on. And we have to, if we don't feel that's the right thing to do, the most important thing is the way you carry yourself and the intentions that you make in that particular uh, interaction. Uh, so that's kind of how I, I see that, yeah. Distributing like books and Qurans, do you, do you think that generally that's a good idea or it's, we should focus more on compartment? I think that it really depends on who and where, right? So that I think that definitely has its place. And I think that um, all of these types of things, if when we specifically refer to that this type of da'wah, and if we say da'wah is service, there's a number of different manifestations. But if we specifically refer to this type of da'wah, outreach type of da'wah, um, you know, there, there's no doubt that that in some scenarios with some people 
giving them books, giving them that translated the, a translation of the meanings of the Quran it, is helpful. I think the main thing is to figure out where Allah is is placed you in relation to who is there, right? So the the people that you see regularly from your own family that might not be Muslim or co-workers or something, that's going to be slightly different than the people that you just see from time to time. Um, but also, there's no doubt, having booths in certain places and just sharing with people, that's very effective, right, with certain people. So I, I'm very hesitant to kind of put all of our eggs in one basket. And I think a comprehensive answer is most appropriate. People are different. I've seen people that, subhanAllah, this can go up and speak to someone, and it's like, my God. Like that person just like, just, you know, completely transformed another person, and because of their personality. And other people are just very quiet and can't do that. So everyone is different, and I think what we really have to realize is, is that there's a thousand and one ways to do this, to be involved in service. And the key is, is that we be involved in some type of service, wherever we fall on the spectrum. And we do so with proper intention and for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. And then the fruits, I think, will, will come after that. Uh, so, uh, you know, one example that passing out translations of the means of the Quran in like a prison, right? Depending upon where someone is, that very well might be a, a good way to do it, right? One of our brothers who's here, that's how he actually became Muslim, right? That he read someone's Quran in Khalas. It was a means for him to accept Islam shortly after that. So that definitely has its place. It's about learning how to fit that in with, you know, abroad. And I think that um, the most important part of this whole story is that we just be. That's the foundation of da'wah, is that we just be. right? And then uh, that rooting ourselves in service of our people we see these people that are with us as our people, and we're in their service, and all of those meanings of service. And we fall so short in that. We fall so short in that. And we need to readjust our community's priorities, right, to being in the service of our people, right? And what I mean by our people is spanning, right, Muslims, non-Muslims, people who don't even believe in Allah, right, people that are in the gutter, right, everyone. We are in the service of everyone. We want to be a source of upliftment for everyone. Uh, and then after that, that they'll take on, have specific manifestations. And um, we, the, the more knowledge that we get, the more we'll know how to be in different situations and what to do with different people. And um, you know, some people are ready for a book. right? And that some people are right on the verge of converting. That one of the brothers who, was, who came to Tarawih, that the Abdul Fakir that we were able to meet with him, you know, a couple months ago. And this person was ready to convert. But it, it was clear that he needed to be the one who decided that he wanted to grow. It couldn't be anyone from the outside pushing him, right? And so the best thing in that, if you think that you're going to push someone away by being that too overt in your approach, the best thing is to leave them and to let them come to that. And so... It's really, really, you know, it's 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 a, it's a it's a science and an art at the same time, and um, you know, I, I think that uh, you know we we have a lot of work to do in this regard, and um, yeah, 
And then subhanAllah, you, see, you, you find, I know other people who, that will pull over at the stoplight and be like, ah, you need to become Muslim. And it works on some people. So you can't rule that out. You can't rule that out. You have to allow for just everyone just to do their thing. You know, and, and uh, that, um, you know, so. <coughs> All right, so let's, uh, we're going to start um, Knowledge and Wisdom by Imam Abdullah bin Ali Haddad. And this uh, his book has just been reprinted, alhamdulillah been beautifully rendered into in the English language by Dr. Mustafa al-Bedoui. So let's just begin, as we always do when we first start our book, with the Fatiha to the author and now the translator of this book to the Ruh of Sayyidina Imam Haddad and Dr. Mustafa al-Bedoui. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yagfir lahum yarahamhum. Wa yu'li darajatum ya rabbin. Allahum infa'na bihadil kitab ya rabbin al-meen. Allahum alifayna bayna kalimat hadil kitab ujumun hadil kitab ya rabbin al-meen. Fuqarat hadil kitab ya rahum al-meen. Wa zukna kamal al-amali wa nawal kubna bihi wa al-kunyatun salihatin jami'an shayam خير الدنيا والآخرة وجزي عنا مؤلف هذا الكتاب خير الجزاء وادمو ترجم هذا الكتاب خير الجزاء وكنية صالحة جامعة من الخيرات الدنيا والآخرة بسر سر الفاتحة إلى حضرة النبي آمين. so إن شاء الله تعالى we will start this work إن شاء الله and look at the introduction so if you can read from page Fifteen, please. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wassalatu wassalam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi sahbihi sallam. In the name of Allah, All Merciful and Compassionate. There is neither power nor ability save by Allah, the High, the Immense. Transcendent are you. We have no knowledge save that which you have taught us. You are the knowing, the wise. May God be praised and thanked. More merciful is he and wiser than any other possessed of mercy and wisdom. He is the best creator and provider. His knowledge encompasses all things and of all things he keeps count. Should he not know what he created when he is the subtle, the aware? He is the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth. He quickens and gives death. He is able to do all things. He is the first and the last, the outward and the inward, and He has knowledge of all things, the alive, the sustainer. His footstool encompasses the heavens and the earth, and it worries Him not to preserve them, and He is the high, the immense. I thank Him for that which He teaches and inspires, that which He causes us to say and understand, for all for, and for all of, and for all his openings and graces that which god opens for mankind of mercy none can withhold and that which he withholds none can release thereafter and he is the august the wise may god's blessings and peace be upon our master and patron muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam whom he sent as a mercy to the worlds made the seal of the prophets and the master of the messengers and upon his family, companions, and those who follow them with excellence until Judgment Day. To proceed, these are chapters of knowledge we have recorded and foundations of wisdom we have alerted to, such as come to mind in the course of mutual reminding, reflection, and meditation, and which scholars, worshippers, and travelers on the path often need.
We have not arranged them in the pattern common to such books, that is, in a particular sequence according to the relation between them, so that each would so that each would complement the preceding one. The reason being that, as we have mentioned, they come to mind on various occasions during teaching sessions and discussions with, which touch on numerous subjects, some quite remote from the others. This led to each chapter being entirely inde- independent of others, the exception being few. The chapters contain comprehensive principles and summary wisdom. Should a scholar of broad knowledge wish to convert each chapter into a separate book by analyzing its principles and detailing its summary wisdom, it would be an easy task, as we will as will be clearly perceived by those endowed with knowledge and perspicacity, and those possessed of hearts and secrets, those to whom God has given wisdom. And he to whom wisdom is given, he truly has received abundant, abundant good, abundant good, but none remember except men of understanding. When we began to record these chapters, our intention was not to publish them until they had reached forty in number. However, a long time has elapsed since then. The required number has yet to be reached, and a sincere brother of ours, upon learning of their existence, requested our permission to copy and study them. This made us decide to bring them out with the benefit to, de- to be derived from them, in th- from them in view. Deeds are valued according to the intentions, and each man receives according to what he intended. At this time, the chapter number, and th- at this time, the chapters number twenty, others can be added in the future. God the exalted willing. It is now time to turn our intention into action. God, it is whose help we seek. Upon Him rests the conveyance, meanings, ability, and strength are only by Him. Blessed and exalted is He. God is sufficient. God suffices us, and He is the best of custodians. My success is only by God. On Him do I depend. Unto Him do I humbly turn. Mashallah. The human being is that naturally endowed with the ability to follow uh, other people. And this is why when you read the books of the great imams of this deen, is that they are leaders in the way of good. They teach you how to speak, they teach you how to act, they teach you how to be. And that the resonance of their great words, even though we're reading them 300 years later approximately, is that it's still there. And if you tune your heart in, is that these people speak in ways that are not like normal people. Their words are extremely measured. They put everything in its proper place. And that we oftentimes don't see that the all of what is behind that the words that are apparent on the page. And um, that, that is in and of itself that actually is a station to, to really understand why they said what they said, when they said it, how they said it, and how it was arranged, and so forth. Um, and that they combine between a scholarly pr- approach and that, that which Allah Tabarakatara brings to their heart in the moment. And these are the, the true ulama al-amilin, the scholars that put their knowledge into practice. And this is a trait across the board, whatever tradition that they come from, is that when they combine these two elements of knowledge and then with inspiration, is that then 
that you get the utmost benefit from their works, and um, that this is really what we this is really what we should strive for. Uh, the way that he begins here is that first by realizing Subhanaka la ilma la illa ma alimtana inna kanta alimul hakim. And it is fitting because, as that the title of this work is Al-Fusul Al-Ilmiyah Wal-Usul Al-Hikamiyah Which Dr. Mustafa al-Bedawi, that he translates as These are chapters of knowledge and foundations of wisdom So he just translates this as knowledge and wisdom But literally it's Al-Fusul Al-Ilmiyah Chapters of knowledge and Usul Al-Hikamiyah And foundations of wisdom But he recognizes here in this regard there's no attribution to the nafs and I remember I was with a friend and he, he had a conversation with Sidi Abdul Hakim Murad and many of his contentions are extremely creative in some of the insights that he has into that uh, various aspects of knowledge and he asked him about it one time, and this is out of the humility of Sidi Abdul Hakim. He said something along the lines like, oh, it's just the same old stuff. And the friend of mine had an interesting, he took an interesting ishara from that. Is that one, he obviously understood that this is the humility of the Shaykh. He is not going to actually call to himself. But on the other hand, he said, in reality, it is just the same old stuff. You wouldn't call it stuff necessarily in that sense. But the idea is, is that, you know, this whole idea of that what we consider to be new knowledge that how do we view that as believers and that discovery is an amazing thing so I'm not saying that we don't actively that embark upon a process of discovery right but what is more amazing to discover the secrets of the Malakut or to discover that some of the secrets that exist within the earth and there's no doubt that the secrets of the Malakut, of the internal realm, of what Allah Ta'ala can show someone, كَذَلِكَ نُرِي إِبْرَاهِيمُ مَلَكُوتِ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْعَرْضِ Ghazali says, this clearly isn't the stars in the heaven, because this is فِي مَعْرَدْ imtinan. Allah is mentioning this as that something great that He's given, that Sayyidina Ibrahim. And thus that we show Abraham the Malakut, the celestial realm of the heavens and the earth, and so he says it must mean that some type of internal state that he's witnessing that from what Allah Ta'ala has created in the internal realm. Uh, so the, the point here is is that, that the discovery that takes place from what exists in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's creation that's beyond the outward is much greater than anything we could possibly discover that in the outward realm. Um, anyhow... That here he's, he's recognizing is that all knowledge comes from Allah. Subhanaka, transcendent, glory be to you. La ilmanana. We have no knowledge except that which you have taught us. We know nothing except that which you have taught us. You are the alim and you are the hakim. All ilm and all hikmah comes from you, Ya Rab. And that, so you have a, a correspondence here between those two names of Allah and the very, the title of the book itself and this is the source of all knowledge is realizing that we know nothing and no matter how much we know is that what we don't know is much much greater always going to be greater than what we do know and the highest degree of knowledge is actually realizing how little we actually know
Subhanallah. Isn't that amazing? That those that have the most knowledge, their station is realizing that they know the least. So anyways, he says is that the reason that he wrote this book was because that as he's in a as he's teaching and as he's in a state of mudakar and tadkir that reflecting upon his knowledge reviewing his knowledge studying teaching reminding other people reflecting pondering that uh, learning lessons from what it is that he's studying he says qad yasnah fil khatir and he translates this as is that is this what comes to mind that during this whole process is that he, he, he realizes that, that many of these insights are very valuable that you'll come back to. And he actually mentions, and others mention another, uh, one of the other great authors of these sciences, is that there's certain things that come to your mind in the path that's very important to write them down. And when you return to them later, you will find benefit. And you might not have fully understood the import of it in that moment, but years later, it benefits you immensely in the path. It just was given to you five years before Methodin, for instance. And um, I know no one that better in that than that than our dear beloved Dr. Omar. Subhanallah. Everywhere he goes, he has a notebook. And he's constantly writing. And he has the humility whenever he attends a conference, he sits in the lecture of every single teacher. Whenever he attends a retreat, he sits in the lecture of every single teacher. Right? We're like children before him that know just, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of what he knows. But he sits in the and takes extensive notes and has notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks of notes that he takes. And then Allah Ta'ala places blessing in your knowledge that when you have that degree of humility and that he was an ocean of knowledge to begin with but in the spiritual path it's of special benefit because Allah gifted you that knowledge and one of the manifestations of that hadith of getting tawfiq and having a path facilitated for you to enter into paradise is that all of us need to know certain things for our salvation or our sanctification to just enter into a paradise or to become from the awliya in other words and Allah will gift you that he'll gift you what you need to know but the key is that we have to be ready for it we have to capture it and this is where you really have to just upbraid yourself and rebuke yourself all of the opportunities that we had how many did we miss how many times were we lazy how many times did we not take proper notes how many times did we not attend the gathering how many times were we late? How many? There was all of these different things. We had so many different opportunities, and you never know. There could have been something that you had to have. That because of your shortcomings, you missed. Now, if it wasn't due to your shortcomings, the hope is that Allah will give you what you need when you need it. But if it's due to a shortcoming, it might be that there was a rank that you could have attained that, khalas, finished, you can't attain anymore. And that's how we have to see ourselves. And ultimately that when we enter into paradise, is that everyone will be happy, but the lower degrees are not like the higher degrees. You know, and then when we see that what was our potential and how that we preferred this and that over this and that, subhanAllah. Is that 
We're going to wish that we would have made better decisions while we're here still on earth. May Allah Ta'ala forgive us and have mercy on us and give us everything that we need to meet Him in the best of states. But he's saying is that these came to mind. The other meaning behind this is, is it by being in gatherings that our Prophet described were gardens of paradise. Jewels are distributed. Meanings come to your heart. Feelings arise. Thoughts that are of an angelic nature that come much more often in those gatherings. And so, that notice he's saying that these came when there was tadaka wa tadkil wa nadur That you have special gifts that come to you from Allah, especially when you devote yourself in these ways to learning, to reflection, and so forth and so on. And so that those tend to be the most pure of thoughts and the most important of thoughts to, in that sense, capture. And that al-ilmu sayyid wa kitabatu qayd. Knowledge is like hunting or fishing. And writing it down is like trapping or hooking that fish. Because you can go back to it and you can return to it. Uh, And so that the great imams, when they have these thoughts, is that it's of that the utmost benefit. And ultimately, that everyone's benefit will be according to the extent of the way that Allah manifests His name, an-nafat, the one who benefits in you. This is one of the statements of one of our teachers, is that مَن تَجَلَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ بِإِسْمِهِ النَّافِعِ صَارَ كُلُّهُ نَفِعِ If Allah manifests His name, an-nafat, in you, everything about you will be of benefit. And there's degrees. And the most perfect manifestation of the name of Allah Nafa is in Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu Not just the general way that that's often presented as that I've only been sent as a teacher. No. In every single moment of his life and everything that he did and everything that he didn't do and every gaze that he made and every word that he said in every single moment whether it was apparently customary or whether it was revelation from Allah, every aspect of our Prophet ﷺ was benefit. And the elect of the elect of the imams, that's their state. And then there's degrees after that. And the wise person will know how to extract benefit from the elect of the elect of the awliya to the elect of the awliya to the righteous people to good people to people who's generally speaking they have some good states but not always to people that are even caught up to as we learned in the intentions of da'wah to people that that are in a very bad state you will learn how to extract benefit from all those different people and if Allah Ta'ala wills and that enables you to do so is that you'll be able to even extract benefit from the animal kingdom and even the plant kingdom and even the mineral kingdom is that you'll learn different ways to that interact with Allah Ta'ala's creation in order to benefit from everything that is around you. So Imam Haddad is saying is that these are things that are needed in which scholars, worshippers, and travelers on the path often need. So whether you're a scholar, right, an alim, or whether you're a nasik, whether you're a worshipper, or whether you a, a murid zalik, an aspirant who is traveling the path, need. And it's not in order in that sense of, it doesn't have a theme that this is chapter 1 to chapter 48, like in the way that the Ihya has like an architecture, for instance. 
These are just that at different times, various things that came to the mind of Imam al-Haddad, and what he was gifted by way of knowledge, that he wrote down that for us, and that then was transmitted generation after generation to this day and age, so that we can benefit from it. So there's no doubt um, that each chapter, as he says, should a scholar of broad knowledge wish to convert each chapter into a separate book by analyzing its principle and detailing its summary wisdom, it would be an easy task. As will clearly be perceived by those endowed with knowledge and inner sight and those possessed by hearts and secrets. And that this is really, that was about wisdom and that it ultimately reached the number of 40 and 40 is a sacred number. 40 is a very special number and there are a number of different narrations that indicate about the importance of 40 that almost all with the rarest of exceptions, prophets receive prophecy after a completion of 40 years. That the Ruh has only blown into the human being after three successive stages of 40. The hadith about whoever memorizes 40 hadith. The hadith about whoever sincere to Allah for 40 straight days. The springs of wisdom pour forth from the heart onto the tongue. Not even in our tradition, that also and the Christian tradition and in the Jewish tradition as well, that and even in world history, 40 has been a very, very important number. And even with modern scientific research, that 40 is a number, for instance, when it comes to developing that patterns and habits, 40 is very important in that regard. So 40 is a very, very important number, and um, that lot could be said about it, and this was his goal was to that... Uh, you also have the 40 Abdal, for instance. So there's a lot there with the number 40. Um, and we're not being exhaustive. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But he made it to be 40 chapters. And he says here that my success is only by God. On him do I depend. And to him do I t- humbly turn. So inshallah ta'ala. We will start with chapter 1, uh, which Dr. Mustafa has titled as the order of priorities, which I believe the chapter titles are uh, from Dr. Mustafa. Uh, the Arabic original doesn't have the chapter titles. Uh, just to give us an idea of what it is that Imam al-Haddad is speaking about, um, it's highly recommended that we read this before coming, and then we review after. Don't just suffice yourself with hearing that it read in class. You'll get much more out of it if you read it. And I would suggest three levels of reading. Just read it from beginning to end, one. And then read it a second time with really trying to understand it at the basic level. What is being said? And then read it a third time, which is the longest of the three readings, focusing on reflecting upon different aspects of what has been said. And so the first reading, if when it comes to a chapter, which is probably just going to take one chapter a week, we'll see, um, you know, that's, that will take you about a minute. The second reading might take you about five minutes. Right? Or maybe th- whatever. The third reading, maybe about 10, 15 minutes, depending upon how much time you want to put into it. And um, you know, then, depending upon how you take notes, it's always good to develop a way of taking notes. Um, some of us have symbols uh, in terms of what we put in the margin and so forth what is underlined, what is not underlined, what we want to memorize, what we don't want. Some, some of these ibarat and these phrases should be memorized. And the benefit of memorizing them 
is that just if you look at this first sentence, for instance, the Arifun are knowers of God, and scholars concentrate primarily on making their faith and certitude sound and strong. And then there's a comma, and there's a lot more there. But, oh, and then, and on purifying their toheed from the blemishes of hidden idolatry. Imagine if you memorize that, and you could recall that at any moment. And that's something that should actually be written, right, and typed out, or writ handwritten, and placed in somewhere that we could see it. A constant reminder. So there's a, so developing a process of how we take notes is also um, is also important in terms of that various points that especially resonated with us, uh, that questions that we might have that we can then ask, and then things that we want to memorize. We've gone a little bit over than what we normally will as we kind of get back into the swing of things, but um, we'll just take a, a short couple of paragraphs from Man in the Universe, inshallah. So we haven't read much in Man in the Universe. We're, we're only on page 8. Um, there is there are three books of Imam uh, of Dr. Mustafa al-Bedwi that are original works that are based upon traditional sources that he intended as a type of trilogy that they all kind of go together. And Man in the Universe is the first one. Then you have Manifestations of the Unseen and Twilight of a World. Uh, and so those three books are, are meant to be read all together. And um, they're all very, very important books, and they're, they're that some of the, the very best original works that we have in English. And um, Man in the Universe is, is, is a dense book, especially the early chapters. You have to kind of read it and reread it, because he is presenting an understanding of the world that we probably didn't learn in Sunday school, mm. or that wasn't presented to us that when, we were, when we were young. So, Okay, so Bismillah, to remain. Bismillah. To remain within the realm of things unfamiliar to most of today's Muslims, and having mentioned the Supreme Assembly, let us recall that when the Prophet, may God's peace, may God's blessings and peace be upon him, was given the choice between prolonging his life on earth or returning to his Lord, he was heard to murmur, O God, the Supreme Company, Ar-Rafiq al-A'la. This Supreme Company or Assembly is said by many authorities to be made up of the Spirit, Ar-Ruh, the four great archangels, or archangels, Gabriel, Michael, Seraphil, Israfil, and, and Israel, and the spirits of the prophets, surrounded by the throne bearers and other angels. When God passes a decree, says the Hadith, the bearers of the throne glorify Him, then those in the heaven beneath them, then those beneath them, until the glorifications reach those who dwell in this terrestrial heaven. Then those around the bearers of the throne ask them, What has your Lord said? And they inform them, and the dwellers of the heavens question each other until news reaches the dwellers of this heaven. Okay, so what, what he what he's doing for us here, if we go back to the early pages, is that he first talks about Allah, and that he just two paragraphs summarizes what we attribute to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then he gets into our understanding of the creation, and says that the first thing he created was pure light, and he wants us to know that there are visible world. There's a visible world, and there are invisible worlds in the plural. And the reason he's doing this is he wants to give us our that metaphysical understanding. He wants to give us our cosmology, how we see things, our worldview, and so that we can that have as a starting point a belief in the seen and the unseen. And he especially wants us to that know 
the vastness of the unseen realm and how in reality the dunya the lower world is the most opaque and densest of all of the worlds and that the higher the realm the closer it is in reality to Allah and that there are different realms and so he's doing this because that oftentimes again that we're so enthralled by modern scientific achievement and discovery is that when you really compare that to the way that we actually view the unseen what are all of these scientific discoveries in reality it's just a, a tiny speck of dust compared to something that is unimaginable now it doesn't mean again that we are that against science it just means is that we need to be impressed by the right things and put everything in its proper place. So then he, he speaks a little bit about the seven heavens and that how that relates ultimately then to after speaking about the terrestrial heaven and he talks about the lot tree of the limit and then he gets into that the idea of symbolism which is really, really important mm-hmm. because oftentimes people that read a hadith and think that they're referring to an anthropomorphic meaning, or that they don't understand the symbolism of something, they think it's simplistic. And that is a major mistake, is that symbolism is deep, because it is only through symbolism that you can just point to reality, otherwise you'd be unable to articulate. So symbolism, only a fool, only a really, really a fool, will deny symbolism. And that they're actually showing their foolishness, even if they... I have three PhDs that if they that aren't open to understanding that something is symbolic, and he gets into that in relation to uh, the attributes of Allah Taala, and we refer to His hand or His hands, Subhanahu Wa Taala. He speaks about the footstool, and then he speaks about the throne, which is the that outwardly speaking, the largest in terms of size of what Allah of, of the, all of the things that Allah Taala has created. And that takes us up to what precedes this particular discussion, is that when he talks about the language of the throne, is that we're limited when we talk about the throne, because it's not here in the tangible realm in the way that we can see matter that is right before us. And so this is what he says, is that there are obvious drawbacks in using such imagery, right? because that you have two different descriptions that appear to be that irreconcilable, but the way you reconcile it is that, well, it's, these are just descriptions according to the limits of language, right? For example, as the throne is usually understood as something that surrounds and contains, right? Yeah. So it's called the Arsh al-Muhit, the surrounding throne. The same throne is described elsewhere as the center of the created universe. So how could it be surrounding and at the center at the same time? The seat of the roar and of the supreme assembly, the Malal A'la. Which one of the amazing things about the Mala'ala comes in hadith literature. And we know that one of the prophetic du'as when you eat at someone's house, Subhanallah. Yani you're doing something as mundane as eating at someone's house. And that they're making a du'a for you, that you're mentioned. That Allah mentions you to those who are in His presence. If that's not the ultimate manifestation of making something from the mundane into the sacred, what is? 
يعني feeding someone could be a means for you to be mentioned in the divine presence Allah to mention you to the Malal A'la the supreme assembly and he then goes on to describe what many of the authorities have said the great scholars about the supreme assembly they're made up of a ruh the spirit and then the four great archangels the spirits of the prophets surrounded by the throne bearers Allah the elect of the elect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation and so there's a lot there and this is important that we see these things as reality these things are reality whether or not we're in tune with them or not this is reality this is reality and we must have that conviction that this is real this is real and it exists and once you believe in Allah It's easy to believe in all of this. Easy. It's easy to believe in miracles. It's easy to believe in the unseen. Because you realize Allah does whatever He wants to do. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so he talks a little bit about here the bearers of the throne and the example that we find in hadith of what happens that in relation to that. So let's just take, I know Maghrib is getting close, we'll just take one more chapter, inshallah, on the intermediary realm. Spanning these levels is the intermediary realm, al-barzakh, where the spirits abide at death after their departure from this world. It is said to have the shape of an inverted horn, the narrowest part beginning in the infrahuman, invisible domain, and ending in sijin, the abode of the disbelievers and hypocrites, while the widest part is adliyun, the roof of which is the throne. The spirits also exist in this horn prior to their descent into this world, and after their return, there they remain until the resurrection. Compared with the material world, the barzakh is subtle, whereas compared with the higher dimensions, it is dense. Okay. So the, the barzakh is, literally it means like a barrier. And here, that translated as the intermediary realm, it's, what happens to us in between this world and between that the day of judgment is what's called the barzakh and it will be that different links for different people and there's a lot that we don't know about the barzakh and there's very little that we do know we know what we need to know about it but we know it is real and we know that the grave is the first menzil and manazil al-akhir. It's the first stage or station of the stations of the afterlife. And when your physical body is in its grave, that your spirit, which will be held somewhere in, as he describes it here, this inverted horn, that the spirits of the disbelievers will be in sijin, and then moving up that towards the top part of this um, horn is that which he says here is the roof of the, the roof of which is is the thorn uh, throne uh, is illyun and and that's why that we know this is the 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 possibility of the human being is to fall to the asfal safalin or to be raised to the a'la illyin and um, that still the spirit even though it's there in this place will have a connection to the physical body wherever it is, and um, wherever it's buried, and even if someone were to be cremated, is that Allah wa ta'ala will still that make a connection to whatever still exists from that human being that to their spirit. 
and so that the, you, there's no that escaping this reality. And um, he said this is also where the spirits exist prior to their descent into this world. And so again, the realm of the spirit, if you notice in the Quran, we all heard the verse, they ask you about the ruh. Say the ruh is from the affair of my Lord. You've only been given that a little knowledge. And that the ruh, we know there's a reality to it. That there is a lot of the very detailed conversations the scholars go into about it, and about that what can we really know about it? And there's difference of opinion there. One of the great places to uh, look at that is the commentary of Imam Zabidi on the Ihyan al-Madin, and he goes into some of the different opinions about <coughs> the roar, and some of it it's like, you know. We believe in it as it's supposed to be believed in. And um, that uh, it was part of uh, Sheikh Jihad's research when he was at Cambridge. So if you want to speak to someone in much more detail about it, he's a very good person to speak uh, about the Ruh from a perspective of uh, theoretical to soul and also from the perspective of a theologian and how that relates to the Western tradition and their conception of the Ruh uh, and um, what can be said about it, what can't be said about it, and what the scholars have uh, that attributed to it and not attributed to it. It's a, it's a long, drawn-out discussion. It suffices us to know that it exists and that it's much more expansive than the aql. The aql is extremely limited compared to the ability of the ruh. They describe the ruh as being arrafa darraka. Right? That has this incredible capacity to know and perceive. And one of the things that our teachers taught is that to just kind of start to understand what this is referring to here, is that there's a hadith that says, if you sleep in a state of tahara, your ruh will sleep underneath the throne. And so just imagine the distance between where you're sleeping and the throne. Now if someone comes and wakes you up, is that your ruh returns to you in the blink of an eye, instantaneously. How can the ruh travel that distance, pow, it's back. And so, that's a whole, it's difficult for the intellect to understand that. And all of this is just kind of pointing. And from here that you have, and this is why it's so important to connect ourselves to that arifin billah, and to believe in the awliya. We must believe in the awliya. We must believe in the karamat of the awliya. And all good comes from the establishing an attachment in your heart to the Prophet and the righteous scholars that came after him. That one of them that said is that that لو تكلمت على ضرة من علوم الإيمان لأعجزت كتبة الدنيا Were to have spoken about an Adam's weight of the knowledge of Iman, the knowledge of the Ruh. He says that I would have incapacitated the scribes of the world. Meaning that it just goes on. Oh, Right, the scribes of the world would not be able to write, right, the knowledge of and Adam's weight, the smallest amount, the tiniest particle bit of that knowledge they would be able to that write it all down. So what about then a multitude of that knowledge? Uh, anyhow, that we'll stop there Ta'ala and pick up from where it says, In these worlds, abstract things take on forms. Uh, this is a dense book, but this is a very important book. This is um, for what it's worth, one of my very most favorite books of all, 
Man in the Universe. And that you can't get enough of it. You read it and you want to read it again. You read it and you want to read it again. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, give us tawfiq. Uh, what time is Salat al Do we have time for... Do you have a time for a quick qasida? Okay. Fine. We have about seven, eight minutes to look at them. <coughs> so normally we'll try to keep the roha to about an hour. Sometimes we get a little carried away. Inshallah, we'll try to keep it to about an hour. Inshallah. Marhaba. Absolutely. No. No. Man tajallallah. Uh... uh uh, what do we say? Man tajallallahu alayhi Man tajallallahu alayhi Bismihi nafi' Sara kulluhu nafi' Man tajallallahu alayhi Bismihi nafi' Sara kulluhu nafi' No, I'm saying قد استعنتك ربي على مداوات قلبي وحال عقداتك ربي فانظر إلى القام ينجل قد استعنتك ربي على مداوات قلبي وحال عقداتك ربي فانظر إلى الغام ينجل يا ربي يا خير كافي أحلل علينا العوافي فليس شيثم خافي عليك تفصيل وجمال يا رب عبدك ببابك يخشى لي ما عذابك ويرتجي لثوابك وغيث رحمتك الطال وقد أتاك بعذره وبانكساره وفقره فهزم بيسرك عسره بمحض جودك والإفضال وامنون عليه بتوبة توسل من كل حوبة وعصم من شر أوبا لكل معان قد حال فأنت مولى الموالي المنفرد بالكمال 
وبالعلا والتعالي على وتع انظار بالامثال جودك وجودك وفضلك وبرك يرجى وبطشك وقهرك يخشى وذكرك وشكرك لازم وحمدك والإجلال يا رب أنت نصيري فلاقني كل خيري واجعل جنانك مصيري واختم بالإيمان الأجل وصل في كل حالة على مزيل الضلالة من كلمته الغزالة محمد الهادي الدال والحمد لله شكرا على نعم تترى نحمد سرا وجهرا وبالغدايا والاصال uh, transliteration and translation of it, inshallah. Can you remind me? We'll print this out next time. ربنا انفعنا بما علمتنا ربي علمنا لينفعنا ربي فكهنا وفكهلنا وقربتنا لنا في ديننا ما أهل القوت ينزع وذكر ربي وفقنا ووفقهم لما ترتدي قولا وفعلا كرما وارزك الكل حلال دائما وأخلت جيه علما نحظى بالخير ونكفى كل الشعر ربنا واصلح لنا كل الشعور وأكر بالرضا من كل يوم وقدعنا ربنا كل الديون قبل أن تدينا رسل منون واغفر السر أنت أكرم ستر والصلاة الله تغشى المصطفى من للحق دعانا والوفاء بكتاب فيه للناس الشفاء وعلى الآل الكرام الشرفاء وعلى الصحب مصابي الغرور اللهم اهدنا بحداك واجعلنا ممن يسار في رضاك ولا تولينا ولي سواك ولا تجعل ممن خالف أمرك وأصاك وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد الهالي وصحبه وسلم يا ربنا اعترفنا بأننا اقترفنا وأننا أسرفنا على لضا أشرفنا فتوب علينا توبة تغسل كل حوبة واستولنا العراتي وآمن الرواتي واغفر لوالدينا ربي ومولدينا والأهل والإخوان والسائر الخلان وكل ذي محبة أو جيرة أو صحبة والمسلمين أجمع أمين ربي أسمع فضل وجودا منا لا باكتساب منا بالمصطفى الرسول نحظى بكل سول بالمصطفى الرسول نحظى بكل سول بالمصطفى 
الرسولين احباب كل صولي صلى وسلم ربي عليه عد الحبي وآله وصحبي عدادة الصحبي والحمد لله في البدء والتناهي Accept us in the state that we are in. Ya Allah, Allah. <coughs> in all of our slip-ups, Ya Allah, we ask you that they be the slip-ups and the mishaps, Ya Allah, of those who are beloved to you, such that you forgive them, Ya Allah. Allah, may take care of all of our affairs and bless us to be able to be in the service of humanity, Ya Allah. Bring great good about our hands to those that are around us, Ya Allah, and the people in these lands in which we live, and to the Ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad and people that live in worldwide. Allahumma, may we be principled people, and the principles of Iman, Islam, and Ihsan, and everything that we do may be completely upright. Bless us to be able to maintain <coughs> that uprightness in all of our different affairs, Ya Allah. Bless us to be able to live lives that are pleasing to you, and bless us to have the last thing. We say, we exit this dunya bi la ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam completely actualizing it meanings inwardly la ilaha kunyatan salihah jamin shamil khayrat al-dunya al-akhirah wa ila hadrat al-nabi Allahumma sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fatiha fatiha